Father, we thank you for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for the fellowship that we've enjoyed this morning. We thank you for the baptisms that we have witnessed, the visual professions of faith. Thank you for these souls who have followed you and likely will be brought into fellowship here at Providence this evening. Thank you for the truth of the words that we've sung, the truth of the words that have been read to us in the scripture. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. And now we thank you for the great honor that is to open our Bibles, to read your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us as we do so. That he would help us to understand your word and to apply it rightly. Father, glorious things await us this morning. We, we pray that you would stir our, our hearts up to love what we find, to love the Lord Jesus more deeply, to, to be filled with gratitude for how you have designed us and for the eternity that awaits us, for the great privileges that you granted us in this life to enjoy fellowship with you. Pray for your help in the coming few minutes. We do it with boldness in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. We've made a habit out of taking larger chunks of Scripture in our study of Leviticus. At times, studying more than one chapter at a time. We're going to reverse course in that trend this morning and, and study only nine verses. It may feel a little funny to only read nine verses this morning. I, I trust that we'll all be okay and survive this. There's a good reason for it. As you're finding your place there in Leviticus 24, if you would stand with me, please. We'll read uh, the first nine verses. Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it, Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. 
may be seated. It was a beautiful morning this morning. It's kind of turned a little bit. Now, even if you couldn't see out these windows, you would know exactly what I meant by that, right? You would know that I meant it was sunny this morning, and now it's not sunny. Because universally, when we say it's a beautiful day, everyone pictures sunny outside. When, when you say, oh, it's a beautiful day outside, nobody pictures rainy, gloomy, cold. When, nobody does. We universally interpret beautiful day as it's sunny. Why do we do that? It's because sunlight is objectively, not subjectively, objectively pleasurable. Sunny days objectively feel better than rainy, cold, windy, dark days. When sunlight hits our eyes, there are parts of our retinas that send a signal to our brain to produce serotonin, which regulates our mood and emotions. So, sunny days, they, they feel better. And we are then drawn out into the sun. Now, why might we be designed to be drawn out into the sun? Well, there is, there is a very practical benefit to this. When the sunlight hits our skin, other signals are sent to our brain to cause our body to make vitamin D. Some, some of us maybe think that the, the, the sun is this huge ball of burning vitamin D and we have to just go out there and absorb it. No, no your body makes vitamin D when sunlight hits your skin. And so it's a kindness of God to make sunlight pleasurable so that we're drawn out into the sun so that we live. We have to have sun. We have to have vitamin D. Do you know that a, a deficiency in vitamin D makes you extremely more likely to suffer sudden cardiac death and, and other things that are very bad for you? God has, God has designed us be drawn into sunlight so that we live. So the next time you hear someone say, or the next time you say, what a gorgeous day. Think about that. Think about how God has designed you to want sunlight so that you are benefited from it. And think also of this. All of that is a fantastic metaphor for our need for God Himself. God Himself is like Sunlight for the human soul. We were designed to flourish in the radiance of His presence. He, he created us to enjoy Him because we need to be in His presence. In, in the very beginning, that's exactly what man enjoyed. Man enjoyed the unfettered ability to bask in the light of God's presence, enjoying God Himself. In Leviticus has focused our eyes on that central reality of human existence that man was created for fellowship with God. 
Of course, as, as many of us know, the very first chapters of the Bible record the very first man rebelling against God. And as a consequence, being banished to darkness, removed from the light of God's presence. All humanity since then have followed in, Adam, in Adam's footsteps, rebelling against God, and so being banished to wander in the darkness of this life, and then enduring the darkness of the next life in eternal punishment. And for that reason, Leviticus has also answered the central question of human history, which is, how can sinful man, which includes every one of us, how can sinful man enter God's presence once again to enjoy fellowship God for which we were created? Is that even possible? And of course, we have seen in the first half of the book of Leviticus, yes, it is possible, but it requires atonement for man's sin. Man's sin must be atoned for in order for him to enter God's presence. The second half of the book of Leviticus, where we find ourselves now, has pictured the reality that man's life is really all about pursuing the holy presence of God and enjoying fellowship with Him. And we, as as New Testament believers, we are benefited by these reminders that, that since we have come under the atonement of Christ, our lives now and forevermore are about coming into the presence of God, enjoying and worshiping Him. And this can be so helpful when we find ourselves disillusioned with this present life. At times we, we make the mistake of, of seeking ultimate fulfillment in the things of this world. We, we, we might think of, of that, seeking ultimate fulfillment in the think of, things of this world. We might think of that as trying to bask in darkness. Leviticus call, calls us to, no, no, come to rest and enjoy the presence of Christ. Looking forward to an eternity with Him. And we find ourselves in a section of Leviticus that extends from chapter 23 to chapter 25, which is largely about Sabbath. And its overall theme is this, that Sabbath rest pictures fellowship with God, which is the goal of God's redemptive work in Christ. Sabbath rest pictures fellowship with God, which is the goal of God's redemptive work in Christ. You may remember from two weeks ago how chapter 23 began to frame this section for us. Let's, let's actually go back to chapter 23. Turn to chapter 23 in your Bibles. And look with me again at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day, a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, you shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now remember that that whole chapter was largely about the feasts of Yahweh. But the chapter began in verse 3, talking about the Sabbath. That, 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 that weekly routine of rest in the presence of God. And we found then, after that section about the Sabbath that each of the feasts was a special Sabbath, showing that the Sabbath is not, is not just about cessation of work, 
but cessation of work unto content-driven fellowship with God. That is, it's, it's fellowship with God centered on remembering God's acts of salvation and provision. And so we saw in, in each of these feasts, remember it was the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. They all pointed forward to God's redemptive work in Christ and ultimate rest that we'll have in Christ when He returns. So that was chapter 23. The section that's going to, or the chapter that's going to close this section, chapter 25, is also about the Sabbath. So chapter 25 begins with a Sabbath year. It, it legislates a Sabbath year. That sounds awesome, right? And it, and it closes with what we might call a super mega Sabbath called the year of Jubilee, which sounds really awesome. Now, I hate spoilers. Hate them. But by this point, you can probably see this coming. We're going to find in chapter 25 that the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee are fulfilled in Christ. Are, are you shocked? So it's not much of a spoiler. They picture fellowship with God, the goal of God's redemptive work in Christ. So, what are we saying then? This section, chapters 23 through 25, begins and ends with teaching on the Sabbath. But here we've just read this thing in chapter 24, this thing about the lamp and the bread. Is it likely that sandwiched in between all this stuff about the Sabbaths, we have this little passage that has nothing to do with the Sabbath? It's not likely. It's not likely at all. Rather, the lamp and the bread in the sanctuary symbolize Sabbath rest, God's people basking in the light of God's presence. The lampstand and the bread in the sanctuary, Sabbath, they symbolize Sabbath rest, God's people basking in the light of God's presence. So, let, let, let's just walk through that, that passage that we read a few minutes ago, chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. The Lord tells Moses to command the people to bring pure olive oil for this lamp to be kept burning regularly or continually or perpetually. could be translated any of those ways. And it's going to be Aaron's job as the current high priest to arrange that lamp from evening to morning outside the veil of the testimony before the Lord again continually. We, we find that word continually, perpetually, regularly. We find it over and over in this passage. Verse 4 says that Aaron is going to arrange the lamps, plural, on the lampstand of pure gold. And so we might wonder, are we talking about multiple lamps? Are we talking about just one lamp? Well, this is clearer in Exodus 25, where the instructions were given for the crafting of this lampstand. But what, what, what we have here is, is what many of us may have heard of called a menorah. So it is one lampstand, one stand with with seven lamps on it. So there's, there's one in the center and there's three on either side. So it's seven lamps or flames on one lamp stand. So then what do we have so far? Every night, Aaron is going to light that lamp stand, all seven flames, in a room just outside of the Holy of Holies. You remember that the Holy of Holies is the most holy location in the camp. The high priest can only go in there one day a year, if he goes any other time, he dies instantly. 
So this, this room just outside the Holy of Holies is called the Holy Place. It's the second most holy location in the camp. It's the holiest place in the camp that a priest can go regularly without dying instantly. And actually, he's required to go there every day in order to, to light this lamp. And that lamp is, is going to burn all night until the morning, every day, every day, every day, continually. Now, in most of our Bibles, there's a section heading, or, or what looks like a title, that divides verses 4 and 5. But in the original text, there's no such break. He just goes right into instructions for the bread. Twelve loaves of bread are to be baked every week and placed on this table of pure gold. And these are, these are round loaves piled in two piles of six. And according to verse 8, every Sabbath, so there's, there's our connection to the Sabbath, every Sabbath Aaron is going to arrange that bread continually. There's that word again. So every day the lampstand is lit from evening until morning, and every Sabbath... Bread is placed on the table. And what happens to the previous week's bread? Aaron and his sons, the priests, they eat that bread in a holy place similar to other offerings mentioned in the opening chapters of Leviticus. Now what does all this mean? It's got to mean something. Because God is not into just rote, meaningless ritual. It means something. Stay with me here, okay? Stay with me. Exodus 25.30 Exodus 25.30 calls this bread the bread of the presence. And that word presence, super literally, means of the face or in front of. So if we were going to translate it really super literally, it's the bread of the face or the bread in front of. And so the Lord there in Exodus 25 saying, set the bread of the presence on the table before me. So it's the bread of the presence because it's in front of Yahweh. Alright? Now what of the lamb? Exodus 25 again, Exodus 25.37 says that the lamp shall be set up to give light on the space in front of it. And in front is the same word again. And again, super literally then, it shall be set up to give Light opposite its face. Now, Exodus 26, 35 tells us where the lampstand and the, the table of bread were supposed to be placed. The lampstand is on the south side of this room, the, whole, the holy place, and the table of bread on the north side of the room with the lampstand literally facing the table of bread. So the lampstand, again, is intended to shine on what it's facing. And the bread is the, is the bread of the face. The bread, of it, the bread that is in front of. So, so what we have is the bread, I'm sorry, the lampstand shining on what's facing it, or what it is facing. It's facing the bread on that table. And so what we have is that daily, 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 the light is shining on the bread weekly, this, on the Sabbath, you have this picture of bread coming to sit under the light of the lampstand. So, what might this picture in the context of chapters teaching about Sabbath rest 
in the presence of God. It likely pictures the people of God, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, basking in the light of God's presence. Now, do we have anything more than that in the Old Testament to indicate to us that that's what is indicated by this lampstand and loaves? I would say yes, we do. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. In number 6, Aaron and the other priests are commanded to pronounce a blessing over the people. This again is a blessing that is intended to be pronounced regularly. Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 23, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put My name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. These are all the same words as, as these other passages in Leviticus 24 and, and Exodus 25 and 26. You could write down as cross-references a number of psalms that also have this kind of language of, of the Lord shining His, His countenance or His face upon His people and thereby blessing them. Psalm 4, verse 6. Psalm 4, verse 6. Psalm 31, 16. 31, 16. Psalm 80, verse 3. 80, verse 3. Psalm 119, 135. Psalm 119, 135. All talking about this face of Yahweh shining on His people and blessing them. Now that piece that we read there in verse 27, Numbers 6, 27, about put, putting the name of Yahweh on His people, put that in your back pocket for, for just a little bit. Because we'll need that later this morning. We'll also need it next week. Remember that man was created for fellowship with God. He can only flourish in fellowship with God. God is the source of life. And holiness. Leviticus is pointing man in that direction. And, and we would miss the point if we found such pictures as this in Leviticus 24 verses 1 through 9. If we found pictures like that to suggest something like a mere one day a week exercise in outward religiosity. Just I'm just going to come to church and listen to a sermon once a week. That, that's probably what, what the law of Moses is getting at. Just come to church once, once a Sunday and, and listen to a sermon. No, no. It's continual. That light is shining daily, daily, repetitively. This reminds us, this picture, and the Psalms and the Numbers 6, that this is what we were made for. We need God, the highest of all Good. David really helps us to understand this in Psalm 63. So, let's go to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. It's a great psalm expressing the heart of a man who understands the true nature of Sabbath rest. Not just a daily time of, of not working, but a lifestyle of resting the soul in the presence of God, longing for God. Psalm 63, beginning in verse 1. 
David writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now look, look at that again, verse 2. I have looked on you in the sanctuary. Just historically, think about who David is and think about what he's just said there. This indicates that David actually understands the meaning of this picture in Leviticus 24 because David is not a high priest. It is not his business to literally enter the sanctuary. But that actually isn't what he means. He doesn't literally mean I've looked into the sanctuary. What he means is I have meditated on the power and glory of God. I've gazed at the character of God in my own mind and that has led me to worship. Verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, there in verse 6, I would suggest that he's just saying with different words what he said in verse 2. Gazing at the Lord in the sanctuary is meditating on Him in the watches of the night. His lifestyle is gazing on the Lord in His mind. And, and it is His food, he says in verse 5. Verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Now there we get that content of Sabbath rest meditation suggested by the feasts in Leviticus 23. As David meditates on the love and saving acts of Yahweh in the past, he is convict, convicted and convinced of God's salvation and provision in the present, verse 8, and in the future, verses 9 through 11. Psalm 63 is, is like David's stream of consciousness basking in the light of the presence of God. He's, he is simply living out what is pictured in Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 9. He's living out what the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to. Because basking in Christ's presence is the perpetual blessing of the believer. Basking in Christ's presence is the perpetual blessing of the believer. Unlike David, the, the, the typical Israelite and, and the typical person today does not see their need for God. I, I, want, I wonder if we might have someone like that here even this morning. They don't see their need for God. Don't thirst for Him like David. Everyone starts out that way. Rather, the, the natural person, the person in the natural state born into this world, they live in an active state of rebellion just like their father Adam. And therefore, the natural person walks in a state of spiritual darkness, malfunctioning in this life, and enduring the just judgment of God in the next life. 
What is great news is that the Bible depicts God's utter determination to show grace to sinners, to, to save them from doom and darkness, and to return them to the light of his presence. In this tabernacle that we've been looking at in the book of, of Leviticus, and, and all of the tabernacles functions, they point to the solution to man's doom and darkness. What, what God has designed and what has, God has planned from eternity past is to remove man's sin by providing a substitute to suffer in man's place. And by that substitute, he would thereby cleanse man of guilt and forgive him of his sin. He would give man a new heart that desires the light of his presence, and then man could re-enter his presence forever. All of this is is pictured in this tabernacle system of, of Leviticus. Later in the Old Testament, the prophets begin to write about the fulfillment of the things pictured in Leviticus. For example, Isaiah 9, verse 2. Listen to this. See if it doesn't sound familiar. The people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness on them, a light has shown. And, and the prophets, even though they're speaking in the past tense, they're talking about a light that would come. Just a few verses later, there in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, 6, reads this way, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so the, the prophet is forecasting that this light coming into the world is going to be a person. Not just a person, but a divine person. Mighty God. The substitutionary sacrifice given by God to save man from his sin would be God's own Son, Jesus Christ. And we find Jesus Christ saying of himself in Matthew 20, verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what happened in that historical event when Jesus died on the cross is that he paid the penalty for the sins of all his people. And the life that he lived for 33 years prior to that was perfectly righteous, having been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. Now God validated all of that by raising Him from the dead on the third day. Now we have learned in the book of Leviticus that nothing defiled, nothing sinful, nothing impure can enter God's presence. The tabernacle showed us that. We also learned that only one clothed in pure garments can enter God's presence. The tabernacle showed us that. So here is what the righteous life an atoning death of Christ can mean for the sinner. Christ's, Christ takes on the sinner's sin and guilt and he dies for it. So it's like he takes, he takes all of the sin of the sinner as if it were a robe of guilt. He places it on himself and he goes to the cross and dies for it. He also gives the sinner his own perfect righteousness to wear like a robe. And that removal of sin from the sinner... And covering of righteousness on the sinner allows the sinner to enter God's presence. But here's a crucial question. 
most important question that, that, that could be asked, possibly, which sinner or sinners? Jesus said of himself in John 18, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me. And that word follows says it all. Those who follow will have the light of life. The Bible also uses two other words to make that word follow a bit clearer. Those two words are repentance and faith. Repentance means turning away from my own way of sin. Say, saying to God, I'm rejecting that road. And, and faith is trusting in Christ with, with all that I am. My, my mind, my heart, my, my past, my present, my future. Believing that His righteous life and atoning death alone can save me from eternal wrath on the day of judgment. It is the follower of Christ. The believer in Jesus Christ who is saved from sin, who is given life, and who enjoys eternal fellowship with Him. And, and, and here, here's a major point for us this morning. It is not then unto our own agenda, unto our own wayward road, our own trajectory, our own dreams that Christ saves us. Jesus does not give his life as a ransom for many, only then to set us free like balloons on a cloudless day, never to see us again. No. He calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He, he saves the sinner unto basking in the light of his presence. That's the whole point. And this is where everything is headed eternally. Turn, turn, turn with me now to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. There's a confluence of biblical imagery here coming from multiple sources, including Numbers 6, which we looked at this morning, and Leviticus 24. Revelation 22 describes elements of the new heaven and new earth where those who repent and trust in Christ will spend eternity. Now see if you don't notice echoes from previous passages that we looked at this morning as I read beginning in Revelation 22 verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Now remember briefly back to Numbers 6, 24. It read this way. I'll read it to you again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put My name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And, and I suggested about Numbers, 26, Numbers 6 that the content of that blessing was symbolized in Leviticus 24 verses 1-9. through 9. With, with the lampstand and the bread, the people of God basking in the light of, of God's presence. 
Revelation 22 indicates that's precisely the blessed state of eternity. Sitting under the light of the presence of God forever. And, and if we were to back up a chapter in Revelation, we would get more of the same. You, 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 can, you can turn to 21-23, Revelation 21-23. It, it reads this way, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. See, it, it, it seems that we will eternally, literally, and I'm a stickler for using the word literally, literally. We, we will literally bask in the light, presence of Christ. And in that warmth and joy, we will automatically and willingly worship Him. Is that wonderful? When we think about eternity and the wonder of it, what makes it fantastic, perhaps we think first about some of the other things that Revelation 21 and 22 mention. No more tears. No more pain. No more sickness. No more death and mourning. Raise your hand if you get stirred up when you think about those things. I do. And I think it's appropriate to get stirred up when we think about those things. Those things are written down for our encouragement. But let's be clear about this. Revelation is written in such a way that even those wonderful blessings are intended to be understood as the fringe benefits of glory. The light of the presence of Christ is the great blessing of eternity. Because what do you have without Him? What do you have without Him? What do you call absence of tears, absence of pain, absence of death without Christ, given that He is the lamp of eternity? What do you have? You might as well call it outer darkness. So, let's get our heads on straight about what is the great gift of the Gospel. It is the very presence of God. And the picture that we've seen in Leviticus 24, 1-9, that is the gift given to us eternally in and by the work of Christ. Now, some of us, some of us, if, if we're being honest, we might admit, I'm, I'm not as excited to see Jesus as I am to get those other things. The, the no tears, the no pain, the, the death, the sickness. But I want to be. So what do I do? That may be some of us. Others might say, look, it, it is great. That glory is going to be so grand. Basking in Christ's presence. What do I do in the meantime? I mean, things are pretty terrible for me right now. Do I just bite on a stick? Some of us may be there this morning. So for those who want to grow in their desire to see Jesus, and for those who 
really can't stand away. We want some kind of consolation now. Here's good news, and it, and it comes to both groups in the same package. God is gracious to us, and He has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, or, or what we might call a down payment on glory. And one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to assist us in beholding the glory of Christ even now. So turn with me one more place, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a multi-layered thing going on in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. I don't have time to go deep into what Paul is doing there. I'll give you just a little bit so that you can grasp what, what I'm, what I'm going to use in 2 Corinthians 3. The Apostle describes Moses in these chapters as entering the sanctuary prior to the days of Leviticus. All right, So before all the, the sacrifices are going and before the priesthood has been anointed and everything. So Moses was able to go into the, the tent of meetings, the original tent of meeting. And a similar phenomenon happened then as what is symbolized in Leviticus 24, 1-9. Mo Moses would enter and he would bask in the glory of God's presence. And when he would come out, his face would be shining. Literally shining. But that shining would fade over time. And so he would wear a veil over his face so that the people would not see the fading of that glory. And that's, that's important, alright? The veil prevented the people from seeing the fading glory. Now Paul takes that, he uses that whole phenomenon as a metaphor for the Jews of his day being unable to see the fading or the passing away of the old covenant in light of the coming of Christ. So now look at 2 Corinthians 3.16. He writes, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, he's saying, when someone comes to faith in Christ, the veil is removed and they can see the passing of the old covenant and the blessed arrival of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And here's what I really want to show you beginning in verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What is Paul teaching? Among other things in the larger section. The Spirit helps us to behold the glory of the Lord. What does that mean? Behold, more, more literally, is contemplate. He helps us to contemplate the glory. This is, this is a lot like what, what David is saying in Psalm 63. I've gazed on you in the sanctuary Literally? Is David literally gazing on the Lord in the sanctuary? No. What he's saying is, I've meditated on you in the watches of the night. Similarly, the, help, the, the Holy Spirit helps us to, to see in a spiritual sense, to meditate, to understand, to, 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 to look at in our, our mind's eye, in, in, in our heart's eye, the things of Christ with a right understanding unto transformation into the image of Christ. In other words, the Spirit ministers Jesus to us now by, help, by helping us to bask 
in the light of His glory now, and that light is transformative. And so for those of us who may not be enthused about eternity, if you press into fellowship with the Lord now, as David did in Psalm 63, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what will you find? And, and those who, who, who don't want to wait for glory, for some, some, some kind of consolation, but you could use some consolation now. If you press into fellowship with Him now, and by that I mean deep intake of His Word, praying without ceasing, an intentional Christ-centered fellowship with His body, the church, what will you find? What will anyone find if they take advantage of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and press into fellowship with Christ now? I bet you dollars to donuts you'll find what David found. His steadfast love is better than life. And you'll find your soul satisfied as with fat and rich food. You'll find your soul clinging to Him as He transforms you into His own image from one degree of glory to another. You'll find Jesus to be all desirable. This is what the Holy Spirit does. I encourage you, no matter which camp you find yourself in, maybe you're in both. Make this a, a daily, hourly, continual prayer. Oh Father, by your Spirit, please grant see, desire to be satisfied by Christ. We must understand the privilege that we enjoy when we enter the presence of Christ in fellowship with Him. Now, we have this, this grand privilege of Spirit-empowered, basking in the radiance of Christ's glory, temporally, now, beholding with spiritual eyes the glory of Christ, as David did in Psalm 63. And that, that prepares us well to do His work in this life, and it prepares us well to anticipate seeing Him with physical eyes one day, and enjoying His physical presence. Forever. Why would we not give ourselves to that fellowship now? Seeing as it is our eternity. Seeing as it is our great privilege today. It's possible that we have here those who have heard the things that I've said and you know that you don't have fellowship with Christ at all. I want to talk to you for, for just another couple of seconds and say, please understand that this eternity, this grand eternity that I've talked about, this is, this is something that is not yours. Rather, what was facing you right now is, is a much different eternity. It's an eternity of darkness. It's, it's an eternity that every one of us deserve because of our sin against God. It's an eternity separated from God in what the Bible calls outer darkness, eternity of, of, of suffering and torment in a place called hell. And again, it's not something that you deserve more than the rest of us. We all deserve it. The good news 
is that you don't have to go there. The Lord Jesus Christ, sent by God as a gift to, to believers, can save you from that. Turn from your sin today. That is, that is, say to God, I don't want my own sinful trajectory. I don't want my own sin anymore. Rather, I want Jesus to save me. I want His righteousness to cover me when I stand in Your presence on the last day. I want His death on the cross to pay for my sins. Please save me. If you repent of your sins, if you trust in Christ, then this eternal fellowship with Him forever that can be yours. If you have any questions about that, you can, you can ask one of us. We, we'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be available after the service. Pastor Rick, who, who read the Scriptures for us this morning to begin the service, you can talk to him. We have other elders. You're, you're surrounded by people who can answer those questions. Just don't leave this place today without asking about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift that you've given us, fellowship with yourself. We, we confess yet again with, with eagerness that, that we forfeited it by our sin. You created us to enjoy fellowship with you, but we turned away from it in Adam. And each of us individually by our sin turned away from it, saying we don't want you. And yet you're such a gracious and giving God, you sent your son to save us from that rebellion, that we might be saved from that rebellion and be brought back into the radiance of your glory, back into your light. We might enjoy you forever. Thank you for that reality. We pray, Father, for, for, for those of us who have enjoyed the atonement of Christ and who know Him, who have eternity to look forward to, that our, our hearts would be buoyed by that, the reality that the eternity that we look forward to is one of great fellowship with Him, basking in the light of his presence and enjoying you forever. We pray, Lord, that we would, we would enjoy that even now by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, pressing into fellowship with the Lord Jesus, gazing at him and being transformed from one image of glory into another daily as we, as we pour into the scriptures and as we pray without ceasing, as we enjoy meaningful fellowship with one another. Pray that we would grow by that in our affection for Jesus, our desire to see Him face to face. And we pray that we would be consoled in our difficulties of this life by it as well. We pray also, Father, for those among us who may not know You. We pray that You would do them the great kindness of helping them to feel in this moment the weight of their sin. Dire straits that are theirs outside of Christ. Help them to see that they're doomed. And help them to see the all-sufficiency, the unique sufficiency of Christ. He alone can say, He alone is your Son. You alone are God. Grant them, Father, to repent and trust in Him. They may be saved. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.